Good morning. You may know we are in the midst of a uh, three-week sermon series uh, that was born out of Think with Ravi Zacharias and his group. And um, the three weeks we're dealing with, kind of the overall topic that we're dealing with is reasons to believe, or I said another way, reasons not to believe. And when we, when we went through Think with Ravi's group, it was all about apologetics. And so it seemed to make sense to come out of that and talk about a few things that seem to be a stumbling, either a stumbling block to people who don't believe or maybe something that would be um, something that we as believers aren't always completely sure of. And so last week, Chris talked about if we have an omnipotent and loving God, how is it that there is still suffering and evil in the world? This week, we're going to talk about can we believe the Bible? Is the Bible trustworthy? Can we rely on it? And then next week, the final week, will be is Jesus the only way? And all three of them hope what, what our goal is, is that we can kind of give ourselves as believers a better understanding of some of the stickier issues maybe of our belief and to understand why we believe what we believe and so that we can defend what we believe. You know, Peter, so I think it's Peter, isn't it, who says that always be ready to give an account for what you believe, right? And so that's kind of the goal of these three weeks. But today we're going to deal specifically with why do we believe the Bible? And when you approach this topic, you can kind of approach it from two different perspectives. One is a very apologetic view, which deals with some of the external evidences, the third-party reasons why we can believe the Bible. And, and you, from an apologetics perspective, you would talk about those things when you're dealing with skeptics. So when they bring up things like, how is it that the Bible was written originally either in Hebrew and Greek, and yet we're now reading it in English, how do you know something wasn't lost in the translation? Uh, do you have the original manuscripts of what was written? And if you don't, how do you know that what you're reading goes along with what they originally wrote? Secondly, how do you know that the people who wrote it know what they were writing about? In some cases, we have eyewitness accounts. In some cases, we don't. How do you know that those are all reliable and you can depend on them? And then lastly, or not lastly, but another thing that you can deal with in an apologetics perspective is how do you even know that the collection of books that are in this are the ones that should be in it? What do you do with things like the Gospel of Thomas and things like that? Other books that weren't included in what's called the canon. So that's the type of things that apologetics would deal with. Those are not the type of things we're going to deal with this morning. Because the other way of going about this is to just look at the Scriptures themselves and see what they say about the reliability of the Bible and then use that to kind of look at the whole Bible and say, can we use the Bible to defend the Bible? And that's what we're going to try and do this morning. We're going to start out in the passage that was just read, 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21. And we're going to take that and we're going to we'll learn a couple of lessons from that passage. And then we're going to take that lesson and we're going to prove it by going through the entire Bible. Now, I know that sounds maybe a little intimidating in a 40, 35 minutes time that we have together, but that's what we're going to do. Now, from the standpoint of which scripture we had read, it made more sense to read the Second Peter passage rather than the entire Bible. But from the standpoint of what our text is this morning, it really is everything. But with that in mind, then, let's go ahead and turn to the text. 
of 2 Peter 1, starting in verse 16. And before we even get to 16, let's get a flavor for the context of this. Peter is writing to these people, and he starts out in verses 3 and 4 and makes two comments that are going to kind of govern what he says in the rest of this chapter. He says in verse 3 that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And then in verse 4 he says that he has granted us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature. And he uses those two truths, basically who we are as the redeemed, to then in verses 5 through 9 to make, a bunch of, to, to make some comments about the character qualities that should be true of us in light of the fact that God has given us everything for um, life and godliness and the fact that, we're diviners of the, and we're, that we are partakers of the divine nature. He says, here are the, thing, the characteristics that should be true of you in light of who you are. And he says that, and then he comes down to verse 10, and he says, Therefore, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. So his, his point is, these things should be true of you, so make sure that you examine your life and make sure that they are true, because if they are true, then verse 11 is true. Verse 11, for in this way... The entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So the whole case that is so the whole kind of point that he's making is who you are in Christ should determine how you live. So make sure that that is the case with you, because if it is the case with you, then you will gain entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now he's not saying that live a certain way, get rewarded with heaven. That's not his point. What he's saying is live a certain way because that shows that that, that's the evidence that you belong to Christ and the fact that you belong to Christ is your ticket into the eternal kingdom of Christ. That's what he wants us to get. He then, in verse 16, starts to build a case for why what he said in verses 1 to 11 is true. And the case that he's going to build verses, in verses 16 to 21 is that Christ is coming back and we can know that Christ is coming back. And if we know Christ is coming back, then we can be assured that we will be with him in eternity. And in building this case, talking about that Christ is in fact going to come back, he gives us some, some understanding of how the scriptures were written. All right? So that's the context. Let's go ahead and jump into the text. Verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Basically saying, we didn't make up the fact that Christ is coming again. We didn't make it up. It's not a myth. It's real. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, we don't know what he means by that, but that's what he's going to explain in verses 17 and 18. For when he received honor and glory... From God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. What's he talking about? What he's talking about is the transfiguration. Do you know the story of the transfiguration? Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, 
takes them with him to the top of a mountain. They get to the top of the mountain, and suddenly Jesus is transfigured in front of them. And he essentially stops being Jesus in human form and becomes Jesus in glorified form. And they see him glorified. Not only that, but they see two others with him, Moses and Elijah. Which, what's interesting about that, when you think about it and you read through that text, Peter, James, and John have no idea what Moses and Elijah look like, right? It's not like they have pictures of them. And yet somehow they know that's Moses and Elijah. We don't know how that works, but somehow it does. Moses and Elijah are there probably, by the way, because number one, they are two of the most important people in the Old Testament, as far as two of the most important prophets in the Old Testament. But secondly, both of them had messianic prophecies said about them. About Moses, God said to Israel, I will raise up another prophet like Moses who will speak to you and you better listen to him, basically talking about the Messiah. And about Elijah, God told Malachi to say that Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So both of them have a messianic connection. That's probably why they're there, connecting Christ connecting Jesus to the kind of the law and the prophets, essentially. So they're there, so the, and the disciples are seeing this. Peter and James and John are eyewitnesses of this, but not only do they see it, but they hear a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And Peter wants his, his readers to know that I was there and I saw this. I didn't hear about this, nor am I making this up. I was an eyewitness to this. And because I saw Christ glorified, that gave me a glimpse of what he will ultimately be like when he returns. And because I saw that, because I saw essentially a preview of Christ's glorious return, I can confidently tell you that Christ is going to return. And if Christ is going to return, then you know that you truly will be with him someday in his eternal kingdom. What I said in the first 11 verses is true. That's the case he makes. And in so doing that, he kind of tells us about a little bit about how the Bible was written from the standpoint of an eyewitness account. But then he goes on in verse 19. And in 19 he says, And so we have the prophetic word made more sure. Now, if you have an ESV, it says it a little differently, doesn't it? It says it something to the effect of the, the prophetic word itself helps us to be assured. And so what we're not sure in 19 is, is he saying the transfiguration gives more credence to the Scriptures, or do the Scriptures provide credence in and of themselves but go along with the transfiguration? We're not sure which one is true, and it doesn't really matter because either way what he's saying is the two things dovetail. They go together. What the Scriptures predict about Christ is the same thing that I saw in the transfiguration. But he goes on and says, talking about the Scriptures, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And he's saying there that the Scriptures themselves are a light in the midst of the darkness of the world because the world isn't for God, right? But the Scriptures provide a lamp in the midst of that, shining in a dark place. Which, by the way, kind of echoes what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. If you went to Christian school and you ever pledged allegiance to the Bible, you'll know this. But in Psalm 119 where it says, the word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. It goes right along with Peter's words here. He says, the scriptures are that to you, so you do well to pay attention to them until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Which is just another way of referring to the second coming. 
So that's the case he's building. The second coming reinforces my words. I know the second coming is going to happen because I witnessed the transfiguration and the scriptures themselves back me up. Which then brings us to what we want to learn from this passage. Which you might have said, so why didn't we go there to start with? But I wanted to get a little text, uh, text of what we were doing, context. Well, verse 20, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And what he says is that in verse 20, we're not sure, again, we could take this two different ways. Either he's saying that those of us as readers can't just make our own interpretation of the Scriptures, but it needs to be a Spirit-led interpretation, or he's saying that those who wrote couldn't just write whatever they wanted, but had to write under the authority of the Spirit, which is then he, what he reinforces in 21 by saying, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So then his, what he concludes with is saying that just like me, where I am writing as an eyewitness and writing what God wanted me to see and writing what God wanted me to write, so all the authors of the Scriptures, now he's specifically talking about the Old Testament here, but we, I think, can extrapolate it to both old and new, that even though human authors wrote the Bible, none of them wrote on their own authority. None of them wrote on their own accord. None of it was just random, oh, I think I'm going to write today. It was written as the Holy Spirit moved them. It was written under the authority of God. They wrote as the Holy Spirit moved them the words uh, that, that, was spoke, that were spoken from God. This goes along, right along, by the way, with what Paul says in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3.16, kind of a famous passage, where it says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for reproof and rebuke and so on and so forth. In both cases, what both men are saying, Peter and Paul, are saying that what we have here isn't just written from humans, but written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as, it mo- as he moved humans to write. And that they only wrote what, and that they wrote the message that God wanted them to write. So, proof number one for how we can trust the Bible is what he says in verse 21 and what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16. The Bible was written under the authority of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't just written by humans. Now, if you're thinking, you might have a problem with point number one. All right? Because what does point number one ask you to do in order to believe point number one? Because what I'm saying is the first proof that the Scripture can be relied upon is that the Scripture says that it was written under the authority of God and that that gives you, and that gives you your reason why you can believe it. But what does that presuppose? What it presupposes is that you believe the Bible to start with. You have to believe the Bible in order to believe the Bible, Right? I mean, that's kind of what I'm saying here. For you to buy that, that 1 Peter 1.21 is a reason to believe the Bible, the first thing you have to do is believe the Bible so that you believe that verse 21 is true and then you believe the Bible. That's kind of a circular reasoning, right? So that may not be terribly helpful. Well, that's why we're going to have points number two and number three. Because what we're going to do with point two and three is we're going to use those to back up point number one so that we can come out of it with a whole kind of a three points that back up the whole, the, this, this concept and then walk out of here confident that what we have truly is the authority and word of God and truly his will. So for point two, let's go back to verse 21. And in verse 21, let's look at what's not there. All right? 
One of the things that you should do when you read the Bible is to sometimes take a step back and go, well, what isn't in this verse? And what isn't in verse 21 is how did this work? What are the mechanics of this? How does it work that men moved by the Holy Spirit wrote the Word of God? Well, it's interesting that he doesn't say anything about God using essentially human robots to write exactly the words that he wanted them to write. You don't get the impression from what Peter says or even what Paul says. And by the way, when Paul says that God breathed the word, he uses sort of the same kind of words that are, meant, that are, used, to, that are used to describe how God created. God called all things into being. Psalmist in Psalm 33 says God breathed creation. It's kind of the same thing. He created this through, human, through humans. But how did he do it? Well, what's interesting, and we know this from just reading through the Bible, that he used human authors and got his word across without taking away the individuality of those authors. When you read the first five books of the Bible that, or, that we assume or that we think was written by Moses, it's a different writing style than when you read on the rest of the Old Testament. You really see it, or, or, and, and when you read in the New Testament, you see a different writing style, heck, it's a different language even, than what the Old Testament was written in. And so somehow God was big enough to accomplish his means while not going against the individuality of the authors themselves. They could still use their own vocabulary, their own writing style, their own perspective, in some cases even their own purpose. We really see this in the Gospels, right? Because what are the Gospels? They're four books all writing about the same thing, aren't they? They're all writing about the life, the ministry, the death and resurrection of Christ. All four of them are. And yet they're written by four different men with four different perspectives, and they all have slightly different nuances in what they include, what they don't include. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels, right? Because they are synonymous with each other somewhat, and they, all, they tend to cover the same things. But even then, they're different. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount in our Sunday school class. You only find the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. You see different extracts from it in Mark and Luke, but Matthew's the only one that includes it start to finish as one um, contained sermon. And then you get to John, and John's completely different. John has stuff that the other three don't have at all, miracles that Jesus uh, performed, staying, events that happened in their life that aren't even in the first three. And yet what do we know about the Gospels? They are a true account of what happened in Jesus' life. It's just from four different perspectives. So God was able, through those four men, to get the message across that he wanted without taking away their individual perspectives and styles. Now, why is that important? The reason that's important is that there isn't any other book written like that. This is it. And the fact that we have a book that was, has 66 books in it, written by multiple authors over hundreds and hundreds of years, and yet they don't contradict each other, and they all get across the ultimate purpose that God wanted, points to a supernatural, super, a supernatural superintending of the whole thing. Because that can't happen apart from God being part of it. Does that make sense? Another thing is just kind of an aside, is that in several places in the Bible, you have authors writing things about themselves that you would think you wouldn't have wanted to write about yourself. For instance, if you're Moses, do you include the scene at the burning bush where you look like kind of a coward, right? Or if you're Peter telling Mark, which most people think Mark, the gospel of Mark is actually an accounting from Peter, 
Would you include Peter's denial of Christ in that if you're Peter? I wouldn't if that was me, and yet it's prominently in the book of Mark. So just as an aside, things like that, and you can point to a lot more examples, is another reason to think, is another reason to believe that there was a supernatural superintending of how the gospel was written. That's all there. Well, that then brings us to point three, and it kind of goes along with that. And that is, the Bible has one unifying message. wasn't written in the same way. wasn't written cover to cover in, with, you know, kind of the, the human robot thing of writing it the same way all the way across. But it has one message that basically runs from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 22, and that is redemption. And this is where we're going to go through the whole Bible so we can prove this. All right? So buckle up. We're going to go through the whole Bible. How does the Bible start? Starts with creation, right? God creates. Everything's great. He creates the whole universe. There's all kinds of controversy on how that works. We won't deal with that. He creates everything. He creates man and woman, puts them in a perfect garden. Everything's fantastic, right? Until man and woman screw everything up and sin. Which, by the way, have you ever thought... How did Adam and Eve live with that the rest of their lives? You ever thought about that? We know Adam lived 930 years. We don't know how many of those years were in the garden, outside the garden, how all that worked. But how do you live? You know, we all have regrets. I don't think any of us have on our resume, we were the vehicle through which sin entered the world, right? That's a big one. So just as that, from that standpoint, I've always thought about that. How do you live with that? But anyway, they sin. They, sin enters the world, spoils everything. God comes to them in the garden, finds out they sinned, and starts dealing with it. Genesis 3 ends up being an amazing scene. Because you know what he does in Genesis 3? You know what our our Heavenly Father does? He first of all, once he asks a few questions about what happened, which is kind of interesting because obviously he already knows, but he still asks questions. The first thing he does is he outlines, I am going to send a Redeemer to solve the problem. And he says that, before he outlines the penalties of sin. It is a staggering passage of Scripture when you read it that way. Before he says, here are the ramifications, he says, first of all, I will, through the seed of the woman, bruise the serpent's head and take care of this. He promises the Redeemer first. Well, as he promises the Redeemer, and then from there on, it's the story of redemption. Adam and Eve leave the garden. They have to leave. They have three sons. Now, they have many more than that, but three that are noted in Scripture, Cain, Abel, and Seth. Cain kills Abel. He's exiled. Seth becomes the son of promise, and the story follows Seth. Seth has generations, hundreds of years that go after him of descendants, all of whom amazingly, seemingly serve God. And during a time where the rest of the world is really becoming more and more wicked, more ungodly. And his generations eventually produce a man named Noah. In Noah's time, the world is so bad that God destroys it with a flood. Noah is literally the only righteous man on the planet. So he and his family are saved. Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem is the son of promise. So the story starts to follow Shem. Shem has numerous descendants until we come to a guy named Abraham. Actually, Abram, later renamed Abraham. Abraham is the first person to whom God appears and says, you are going to be the vehicle through whom 
I start to bring the Redeemer into this world. I'm going to make a great nation of you, and that nation will become a blessing for all the nations of the earth. Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael's not the son of promise. Isaac is. By the way, when you read Genesis, always keep in the back of your mind, you are reading a, a funnel history, a history funnel. Because we're funneling down, funneling down to the line of the Messiah and throwing out anybody who isn't in that line. So Isaac is a son of promise. Ishmael isn't. The story follows Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau is not the son of the promise. Jacob is. So we start following Jacob. Jacob ends up having 12 sons. He becomes the first patriarch to actually have numerous sons all within the promised nation of God. He doesn't choose between the 12. All 12 are within the promise. The 12 sons and their descendants move to Egypt because of a famine, and those 12 sons and their descendants become, over the next four centuries, the great nation that God had promised to Abraham. He told Abraham, I'll make a great nation of you, but it doesn't really happen until three, three or four generations later when the 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel, by the way, is named after Jacob because Jacob is renamed Israel toward the end of his life. The nation of Israel becomes a great nation in Egypt, but also becomes enslaved. God, after 400 years, sends Moses to them and delivers them out of Egypt in, by the way, the most important historical event in the Old Testament. Nothing, maybe short of creation, is more important than the Passover and Exodus of, out of Egypt. Why? Because the Passover and the Exodus point directly to redemption. If you understand what Passover is, it is all pointing to the ultimate redemption with Christ. If you read the rest of the Old Testament after Exodus, you'll constantly see God describing himself as, I am the God who delivered you from Egypt. He reminds them of it constantly. It's the biggest event in the Old Testament. Well, after the children of Israel leave Egypt, they go into the wilderness, they go to Mount Sinai, and God gives them the law. And from the middle of Exodus all the way into Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is all law. And what does the law say to the Israelites? The law says two things. Number one, you cannot come into my presence, me being God, you cannot come into my presence without blood. Blood has to be shed for you to come to me. Why is that? Because with sin, it must be penalized by death. There is only one penalty for sin, and that's death. So you can't come to me unless there's blood. Secondly, I want you set apart. And so the law does two things. It puts in a system of offerings and sacrifices showing that blood has to be shed to enter into God's presence, but it also then, part of the ceremonial law, is to separate and set apart the whole children of Israel. Why? Because it's through Israel that the Messiah will someday come. So Israel has to be kept separate. It has to be holy. That's what the law says, those two things. There has to be blood. You have to be set apart. That gets us to the end of Deuteronomy. Then we go back to more history with Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. And the people enter into Canaan. They have judges over them for a while. They eventually appoint kings. They have Saul. They have David. They have Solomon. And then we come to a guy named Rehoboam. Rehoboam, son of Solomon, becomes the last king of the United Kingdom. Rehoboam isn't exactly a Mensa candidate. Rehoboam makes some very unfortunate choices that ends up splitting the kingdom. Ten tribes make up the northern kingdom. Two tribes make up the, the southern kingdom. The ten tribes to the north never, ever serve God. 
from the get-go, from the time they start to the time they're exiled, they never serve God. And God eventually brings in Assyria, exiles them, we don't hear from them again. They're gone. The two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, just called Judah, end up surviving. They get exiled to Babylon for a while, but they come back. Why do they survive? Because Judah is in the line of the Messiah. And that pretty much brings us to the end of the history in the Old Testament. But what does the history of the Old Testament show us? It is God achieving his ends through sinful man, and his ends are protecting the line of the Messiah and providing for the redemption of the sinful man he's working through. That's what Old Testament history is. It's God making sure that the line of the Messiah is protected. That's why the two tribes survive. Well, that brings us to the wisdom books. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. What are the wisdom books about? They are about practically living with God, practically living with the law of God, understanding more about the nature of God, understanding how to worship God. Those are all the things that the wisdom books tell us. But what is everything in the wisdom books based on? Redemption, because it points back to the redemption of the, out of Egypt, points forward to the promised redemption of the Messiah. Everything about God is built on that, and that's what the wisdom books are based on. Well, we get to the end of the wisdom books, and then we get to the prophets. In the prophets, you start with Isaiah, go all the way to Malachi, and what are the prophets all about? You have the major prophets and the minor prophets. By the way, you know the difference between the major prophets and the minor prophets? Big books, small books, that's it. Not any great theological truth, all right? If you ever were worried about that, I never really knew what the difference was. The big books are major prophets, the small books are minor prophets. What are the prophets all about? The prophets are, here's what happens to the people of God when they don't serve God. That's the immediate future. But then the long-term future, all the prophets keep pointing to, eventually God will reconcile his people to himself, and they will live in relationship to God differently than they do now. And what is that? That's redemption. And they say, in the, here in the immediate future, they are going to typically be punished and horrific things happen to them because they've forsaken God. But in the distant future, God will someday deal with them differently because he's going to send a redeemer who will reconcile them to him. And that brings us to the end of the Old Testament. And so when you look at it from that standpoint, from Genesis 3 to the end of Malachi, it's all screaming out, redemption, redemption, redemption. History, law, wisdom, prophecy, all redemption. Then we go into the New Testament. And what's the New Testament? The New Testament is redemption accomplished. The first four books, the Gospels, the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. The promised redemption happens. The Messiah comes, he dies, he rises again. Redemption has happened. Then you go into Acts. Acts is the continuing ministry of Christ through Christ's spirit. Instead of Christ physically being on earth, it is his spirit ministering and spreading the word that redemption has been accomplished. Which then brings us to the epistles. And what are the epistles? The epistles are how do we live in light of the fact that redemption has been accomplished. And then we end with Revelation. And Revelation is John's vision that says Christ will someday come back, call the redeemed, a, a glorified Christ who accomplished redemption will come back and gather the redeemed to himself, culminate history, and sew everything up. So when you look at the Bible that way, and you say, from the start 
in Genesis. And really, you could even go back before Genesis 3 to Genesis 1 because there's really only one reason you put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, and that's because of your plan of redemption. But regardless, from either Genesis 1 or Genesis 3 until Revelation 22, there is one message, redemption. And God was able to accomplish that in this Bible with a myriad of different authors over hundreds and hundreds of years with all writing in their own individual way and yet all staying on track with that one message. And friends, that doesn't happen unless we have a supernatural God in charge of it. And when we see the Bible like that, that's when we can more easily believe what both Peter and Paul said. This is God-breathed. This is men writing as the Holy Spirit moved them. This wasn't just myth, and it wasn't just humans writing on their own authority. It is so much bigger than that, and we serve a God who mercifully gave us his word and gave it to us in a way that we can be confident about it. This is God-breathed, and we can be sure of that because of what it says about itself and what we know about it as we read through it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being with us as we go through this. Thank you for communicating these enormous truths all through your word. And thank you that your plan of redemption was there before the foundations of the world. Thank you for helping us to have confidence in your word. Thank you that what the word ultimately says to us is that a glorious and loving God decided to glorify himself and love mankind by redeeming it. Help us to grasp that this week, Father. Help us, by the way, to be motivated to dig into your word. And I thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.